This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna Hobart. Representatives from nearly 200 countries are in Egypt for the start of the annual United Nations Climate Change Summit. This year's event is commonly known as COP27. A focus at the talks will be a push to compensate poor nations for the damage caused by global warming. Until now, wealthy countries have rejected attempts to set up a scheme to do that, and it's not clear how much progress will be made at these discussions. The summit's happening a week after a UN report showed global emissions are still rising dangerously fast. Our correspondent Alison Horn is attending the event. Well, in just a few hours' time, Sabra, there'll be about 30,000 people that arrive here in Sharm el-Sheikh, which is a, a resort town in the southern part of Egypt, for this two-week COP27 conference. Uh, traditionally, what we've seen at this UN climate change conference is uh, a lot of policies and big agreements being signed. Think the likes of Glasgow last year or the Paris Agreement in 2015. That's not what we are going to see this year, but people here say it doesn't mean that this COP is going to be any less significant. In fact, they argue that this one will be even more significant because it's about holding nations to account. They say it's all good and well to sign these big commitments and big agreements and big plans, but unless nations are being checked on and being held to account with the implementation of these plans, they mean virtually nothing. So that's what this conference is about. It's about looking at the implementation of where these plans are at, what more support is needed, particularly financially, and whether or not um, wealthy nations, including Australia, need to do more to help developing nations deal with the ongoing effects of climate change. For the first time, discussions about a loss and damage fund will be on the agenda. What's the significance of that? Yeah, so a loss and damage fund is something that has kind of been discussed for a couple of years now, this idea of uh, developing a pool of money for developing nations to be able to tap into to deal with the devastating effects of climate change. You know, we're seeing things like those horrific floods in Pakistan earlier this year and even to our north in the Pacific Islands, the very real present danger that climate change is posing there is the, with the eradication of their lands um, and literally islands being swallowed by rising seawaters. So the proposal to increase include this idea for a loss and damage fund is seen as pretty important going forward and it's a little bit controversial. For example, last year it was actually touted to go onto the agenda uh, but wealthy nations actually blocked it. So the fact that it's even got onto the agenda this year is pretty significant. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be any binding compensation or you know liability involved this uh, specific COP, but uh, I think a lot of people would say that that is a step in the right direction to uh, set up this pool of funds for developing nations. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese won't be there. Who will head the Australian delegation and what will they bring to the talks? 
So this week, Sabra, it'll be the Minister for International Development, Pat Conroy. Uh, next week, it will be the Climate Change Minister, Chris Bowen. Uh, those talks will largely centre around building relationships with the Pacific, which will be pretty important for that loss and damage fund that I just mentioned to you, but also for Australia's bid to host a COP. It was just a few days ago that the government announced its formal intention to host one of these conferences in 2026. That'd be about the size of bringing a Commonwealth Games to Australia, so no small feat. And one of the most important uh, relationships to bringing that COP to Australia would be with the Pacific. So uh, what we're hearing from the Australian delegation is there will be a lot of discussions with uh, our Pacific neighbours about building those relationships and trying to uh, further support them in their struggles with climate change, future-proof them, and also build those ties to see whether or not Australia is a viable option to host COP in a few years' time. Correspondent Alison Horn there. And as Alison just mentioned, Australia will use the fortnight-long talks to lobby for support to hold the 2026 event. Part of the pitch is to jointly host those talks with Pacific nations. Henry Bellow explains. This year's climate change conference in Egypt may be smaller in scale than Glasgow, but the stakes are high. We're hoping to achieve a couple of significant things. Pat Conroy is the Minister for International Development and the Pacific, who will be leading Australia's delegation during the first week of talks. Beyond policy discussions, he'll be lobbying nations to support Australia's bid to co-host the 2026 conference with Pacific nations. I think people are broadly supportive, but obviously other countries in our regional block may have interest in it. So there'll be the normal sort of diplomatic rough and tumble about it. Pat Conroy says hosting the conference would send a signal that Australia's policies have changed while also demonstrating the impact in the Pacific. Which is really on the, at the front line of climate change right now. There are countries that are losing islands right now because of it. Minister Conroy says other goals at this summit include strengthening relationships with Pacific leaders and implementing commitments made in Glasgow. One of the most contentious discussions at this conference will be whether industrialised nations should compensate developing nations for damage caused by climate change. The chief executive of climate analytics, Bill Hare, has previously advised developing nations during climate negotiations and is in Egypt for the summit. We've seen some of the events that might be called loss and damage already this year. Massive floods in Pakistan, millions still displaced. Many wealthy nations oppose loss and damage negotiations and worry they'll be held culpable. Dr Hare says the issue could be a sticking point for Australia. If it doesn't really show a lot of improvement in some of the positions on finance, loss and damage, then there's not going to be a lot of support for Australia hosting the COP, actually. I think there's, there's a big risk there. The ABC has been told Australian delegates spoke in favour of including a discussion about loss and damage on the conference's official agenda to hear what options could assist Pacific nations, keeping a potential co-host on side as lobbying continues. Henry Bellow reporting. The United States president and several of his predecessors have been crisscrossing the country in the final countdown to this week's midterm elections. Democrats are fighting to keep control of both the House and the Senate, but are also facing unexpectedly tough battles in key races for governor. While Donald Trump continues to fuel speculation, he's about to formally announce he's running for president again in 2024. Here's North America correspondent Jade McMillan. In the final few days before an election, every campaign opportunity counts, which means eyebrows were raised when President Joe Biden scheduled a last-minute event in a deep blue state. It only takes a minute to vote. 
but your choice for governor will be felt for generations. New York's Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul is facing an increasingly close contest with Republican Lee Zeldin, who's focused his campaign on the issues of crime and cost of living pressures. The chair of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, has told CNN... Similar messages are resonating in other races nationwide. Voters are very concerned about inflation, and I think it's broader than inflation. It's rent, it's groceries, it's can I buy a new car because interest rates are so high. People are really, really struggling right now. That is by far the number one issue I hear, along with crime, is a big issue. In Congress, Republicans are widely expected to take control of the House of Representatives at this week's midterms while the Senate, which is currently split 50-50, is considered by many to be a toss-up. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker is not up for re-election this year, but is campaigning for other Democrats and insists he's still optimistic about the party's prospects. This election still is in the balance, and the reality is we're bucking what are usual trends. And I think we're bucking them because folks know at the end of the day, do they want to go back to the sort of Donald Trump politics that divided our nation, undermined our democracy? The former president has played a major role in the Republican campaign, holding rallies for candidates across the country and ramping up hints that soon after the midterms, he'll officially declare he's running for president again. Even taking a swipe at Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, who could be his main challenger for the party's nomination. We're winning big, big, big in the Republican Party for the nomination like nobody's ever seen before. Let's see, there it is, Trump at 71, Ronda Sanctimonious at 10%. The two men are holding competing events in Florida today in what could be a taste of what's to come once these elections are over. This is Jade McMillan in Washington reporting for AM. Millions of Australians have discovered in recent months what it's like to have their personal data stolen. One of the sectors now coming under increasing scrutiny is real estate. Cybersecurity experts warn the greatest threat are basic oversights, not sophisticated attacks. And in Western Australia, it's hoped a new collaboration will prevent this. Isabel Masali reports. A stranger logging into your emails is enough to make any of us panic. But if you're a real estate agent, it means financial transactions are in danger. Scammers monitor the account, just waiting for the agent and client to talk about payments. Then they swoop in, sending their own bank details. And bingo, bango, money stolen. It's pretty frequent. It's pretty common. There's, there's thousands of these things that occur in Australia each year. That's Professor Andrew Woodward, the Interim Director of Edith Cowan University's Security Research Institute. He says this is taking more money than ransomware attacks and it's happening more often. It's one of the reasons why his centre has partnered with the Real Estate Institute of Western Australia, or REWA. The new five-year collaboration includes research and educational cybersecurity programs. So multi-factor authentication really helps in that. If, if someone has a username and password but they don't have the multi-factor authentication, then they basically can't do anything with those details. They're useless to them. Be very careful about what information you do send. When it comes to an important transaction like account details, maybe don't send that over email. Use some alternate means. The couple of things that you mentioned sort of sound like basic advice, things you hope they're doing already. Does that mean that they're not? Um, sadly, yes. Um, in, in a lot of cases, to some extent, it's a, it won't happen to me. Um, and there are some 
easy measures to do to combat this, um, which which I guess is good news in that um, being proactive and implementing some of these measures means we can stop a lot of this. Talks on the project began months ago, but cybersecurity has gained more public attention with the Optus and Medibank data breaches. And last week, Melbourne real estate company Harcourts joined that list. Rewa Chief Executive Kath Hart. I don't think there's a sector that um, doesn't have a cybersecurity problem at the moment. In fact, I'd say the people that are most vulnerable are those that think it's not about to happen to them. So, no, this is around industry um, self-regulating and industry trying to establish what best practice is and, and recognition that many real estate agents are small and medium businesses and they really need this support. Samantha Floriani is with advocacy group Digital Rights Watch. She says it seems like an encouraging step, but she asks why so much data from renters is being held in the first place. We really need to be taking a very close look at the sorts of privacy protections that are in place to prevent uh, over-collection of personal information, to make sure that only what is really necessary is being collected and that it's being deleted as soon as it's no longer necessary to hold that information. Rewa says that's one of the questions being examined in its partnership with Edith Cowan University. Isabel Masali reporting. The Albanese government's been promising to make childcare more affordable for families, but some of those on low incomes say the childcare system can't deal with casual workers who may have to decide between extra shifts and cheaper childcare. As national education reporter Gabriella Marchin explains, parents are looking to not-for-profit organisations for support. Brisbane mum Brianna Wilson has seen her son Cade blossom since he started regular childcare. Oh, he's actually excelled so much. He's talking a lot more. And within the, I think it was, month of him being there, he was actually talking a lot better. And even his teachers, like he loves his teachers. He even has a best friend at school, which is amazing for a three-year-old, I think. Cade's childcare is heavily subsidised by a not-for-profit organisation. It's the only way Brianna Wilson can afford it, while working casually as a support worker. I know if Cade wasn't in daycare, I could not work. And not working, he wouldn't be able to live. Because I don't know how people... I could not live off the government benefits that I'm having before the bills that I have. I know I could not do it. Parents who do casual work face having to pay for childcare without knowing if they're going to pick up a shift. And if they don't meet the so-called activity test for work, they don't qualify for subsidised care. Dr Angela Jackson is the lead economist at Impact Economics and Policy. So if you're not working enough, you can only access one day of care per week. And then as a result, if you get offered that extra shift, you can't take it because you don't have access to childcare. Um, and so what it does is it makes it very difficult, particularly for women, for single mothers in particular, who might be looking, who might be doing that one casual shift a week at the supermarket to then pick up that extra shift. The not-for-profit that helps Brianna Wilson and around 900 other parents and 2,500 kids use the Good Start Early Learning Fund. It ensures each child receives at least two days of care per week and it costs parents just $5 a day. Penny Markham launched the fund in 2015. Families have told us that it has enabled them to look for work, to have the time to look for work and to actually gain employment, which has been a really exciting outcome. 
Economist Angela Jackson says research shows the activity test is really limiting access to early childhood education and care for some of the most disadvantaged families, and it's crucial that it changes. We know from the evidence that kids who don't attend early childhood education and care are twice as likely to start school developmentally vulnerable compared to kids that do. So it's a critical element in terms of kids' development and them starting school as strongly as they can. And we know from there things really flow. The federal government has asked the competition watchdog, the ACCC, to investigate the rising cost of childcare. Gabriella Marchant. New South Wales Parliament passed legislation protecting Aboriginal cultural fishing 13 years ago, but incredibly, it's still not been fully implemented. A state inquiry examining why that's so will hand down its findings today. And if the government accepts its recommendations, it could signal the end to a decades-long battle over lucrative marine resources on the state's far south coast. Vanessa Milton reports. Diving along the coastal reef near Batemans Bay on the New South Wales south coast, John Carriage Jr searches the seaweed for lobster and abalone. Well, I've been doing it since I was a little kid, with me pop and me father, just hunting and gathering and feeding the mob, doing my culture as much as I can. But the 21-year-old Walbunja man grew up seeing his father and elders fined and jailed for exceeding abalone bag limits and he narrowly avoided a criminal conviction himself when charges against him were dropped in September this year. It's taken the spirit out of me. I've slowly stopped providing for my family because it's just gotten to the point where I'm going to go to jail. While the rights of Indigenous people to hunt and gather are recognised under Commonwealth native title law, New South Wales legislation passed in 2009 to protect Aboriginal cultural fishing still hasn't come into effect. An upper house inquiry into the impact of the stalled process hands down its findings today. Mark Benaziak from the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party is the inquiry's chair. Oh, well, it's, it's deeply disturbing. The New South Wales government and its own department has failed to uphold the will of the parliament. They've actually thumbed their nose at the will of parliament. While Bunja elder Danny Chapman, who's the chair of the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, has spent decades supporting Indigenous fishers to fight their charges. The government has gone out of their way to prosecute us at every turn and the only time we get a time to speak is in court. And the inquiry has given us a voice and given us the strength to stand up and say enough's enough. There's a clear flashpoint that we identified during the inquiry that compliance officers are seeming to not understand what cultural fishing is. They haven't been able to distinguish between what's sharing and bartering between a community and what then steps over the line and becomes being in possession for a commercial benefit. The government need to go to the Aboriginal community and learn from them what cultural fishing is. Today's report is expected to answer calls for better training for fisheries officers to avoid unwarranted legal action against Indigenous fishers. So far, the New South Wales government has not given any sign that it plans to soften its stance and has introduced a new amendment to shore up the enforcement powers of fisheries compliance officers. While Bunja elder Danny Chapman... The extraordinary amount of power that fisheries officers have should not only scare Aboriginal people, it should scare every person here in New South Wales. 
In a statement to the ABC, the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries said that the proposed changes will not impact on Aboriginal people practising cultural fishing and that fisheries compliance officers already have the powers to enter premises and arrest without a warrant. Despite the risk of prosecution, John Carriage Jr continues to dive to feed his family. I'm not angry. I'm just over all the fighting and I want changes to happen. It's up to me and a few of us who has the knowledge left to show our culture and how we hunt and gather and if not, I don't know who else will. That report by Vanessa Milton and Kira Proust. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. The recent budget predicted our power bills will rise by 20% this year and another 30% next year. But spare a thought for the people of Europe, where they've already seen electricity and gas bills soar by up to 80%. Today, energy and Russian foreign policy expert Emily Holland on the miserable winter ahead in the Northern Hemisphere. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.